Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. We're excited to be joined by Susie Tachinsky, an occupational therapist who is also a certified driving rehab specialist. Have you ever worked with a patient who has sustained a life-altering injury but wants or needs to return to driving independently and you aren't quite sure if they're ready for that? That's where Susie comes in. She brings her expertise as an occupational therapist and looks at the entire person to determine what's safe, if any adaptive equipment is needed, or if ultimately they are not safe to get behind the wheel. She discusses all of this and more. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Susie. Susie, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this. We're so glad that you were able to join us. We're just going to kind of jump right in. If you don't mind giving us a little bit of a background about who you are and kind of how you got into doing what you're currently doing. Yeah, sure. So my name is Susie Tachinsky. I'm an occupational therapist. I went to Elizabethtown here in Pennsylvania, and I've been an OT for over 20 years. Pretty early in my career, I had one of those she was my supervisor. She was my mentor. One of those OTs that anything she was doing, I just wanted to put my hands into because she just made everything seem interesting and exciting. And fortunately at that time I was working at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So I got to see lots of really cool stuff and she was starting the driving program. And so since she was doing that, I of course wanted to learn more about it and fell in love with it pretty quickly after working inpatient, outpatient, psych, neuro, ICUs, tried a little pediatrics, you know, tried a lot of different areas, got to get my feet wet, but the driving piece really stuck for me. I really immediately love working with people in the community. I love working outside of a facility. I love interacting and being able to move around in my environment and help work with people on something that's really important to them that, you know, we really value. And so I started pretty early in my career. I went and I got trained in Florida and then I became a certified driver rehabilitation specialist. I came out of that for a little bit when I got married, I moved to Pennsylvania and there weren't any job openings at the time. Never thought about opening my own company. So I went to work in long-term care worked for several years for a big rehab company, ended up starting a driving program with that company until this 2018, I was laid off. You know, things were starting to shift with Medicare reimbursement. The company got sold and went public and I was just part of a big layoff. And I kept thinking, man, what am I going to do now? And my husband said to me, he said, oh, you know, I kept looking and the jobs were in long-term care. That's just kind of where I live. There's easily seven long-term care facilities within 10 miles of my home. (laughs) And I thought, well, this is, I guess this is what I'm going to do again. And my husband said, why, why would you, why, why are you going to go back to that? You love driving. You've been so happy the past 10 years. Why would you go back to that? And another mentor of mine called me up and she said, I heard you got laid off. 
So when are you starting your program? And I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> you, you're like, you know, click, hang up the phone. I thought, <laughs> start my own program. You've got to be kidding me. Like I've been in OT for 20 years at this point. Like I can't start my own program, but little by little with that mentor and my husband encouraging me, I kind of started to think, what if I did this on my own? What if I ran my own practice? And this other mentor, Susan was actually just retiring. And so part of what she was trying to encourage me to do is start my own practice, but continue on the education she had started 35 years ago. And so with her support and my husband cheering me on, I opened my own practice and now I run adaptive mobility services and April will be my four year anniversary running my private practice. (laughs) Yeah. April's a great month. It's OT month. It's my anniversary (laughs) month. That four years went fast. (laughs) It goes so quickly. It does. And I will tell you each year it has gotten better and better. I think for me as an OT, I never thought about doing something on my own. I never thought about stepping out into private practice. I was kind of educated in the nineties and It was, what hospital are you going to work for? Which school system are you going to work for? And there wasn't a track for starting your own private practice. And I always, I mentioned my husband, we actually met in school and he was going to school. He eventually became a chiropractor, but they're taught a semester on how to start and run a business and immediately empowered to think that way. And so the past four years, just really reflecting on that, I feel this real calling to help share my story with other people because as OTs, we have an incredible amount of skill to offer. And I think more of us need to step out of the traditional setting or step out of what we thought we had to do and to step forward and work for ourselves. Because in my own practice, I get to call the shots and I, I've fallen back in love with being an OT. I really have. I just, I love doing this and I love working with people and treating them the way I feel like they really should be treated. Not just how I think I can code it or get reimbursed for it. My private practice is cash-based. It's not covered by insurance, which is a blessing and a curse, but it's a real blessing because I just treat people and help them the best way I can. That was a really long answer to that question. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) That's a good answer. Just if you will kind of walk through a referral. So you get that referral. What are you looking at? What areas do you assess? And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and we might go into a long answer again, but that's okay. Do you do training if they have issues that you find on the assessment that maybe aren't quite where they need to be? And then what happens after that? Sure. So my job really comes at the very end of the recovery process, or for some people, it's the very beginning of the recovery or the therapy process. And so let me go from the end of the process. So the end of the process will be somebody who's had a stroke or injury or amputation, and they've gone through recovery. They've worked with their certified hand therapist. They've worked with, you know, all their specialists to regain their movement, their sensation, whatever they can. And now they want to bring all of their skills together and look at driving. So when somebody starts with me, they're referred by their occupational therapist, their physical therapist, their doctor themselves, many times. 
And I start with an evaluation. And so for, I would say a handful of my people, probably a good 50 or 60%, I really only see them one time for the evaluation. That evaluation, I'm set up where I go see my clients at their homes. And we're usually sitting at a kitchen table. I get to know them, take an occupational profile, learn about their habits and routines. And then I start diving into all the different things that we are going to use for driving. So vision and 90% of driving is what we see and how we see it. So vision and the brain. And I'm looking at not just visual acuity and visual fields, but ocular range of motion, saccades, pursuits, just diving right into all that. Then I like to take a look at motor skills. So thinking about strength, range of motion, sensation, coordination, proprioception for hands and legs, trunk and you know, neck and head for driving. You know, do we have the motor skills to grasp and turn a steering wheel, to reach up and hit the turn signal, to move your foot between the pedals? And so we're looking at reaction time also with some of those things. And then the very last thing I do is different tests. And I will pull from my OT background for some of these tapes and then I'll pull other traditional assessments, but I'm looking at how people think and problem solve and learn. So working memory, attentional capacity, executive function, so that I kind of understand them. And I want to use that vision, motor, and cognitive components to really understand somebody before getting in the car, because I want to know what to expect. So that first part can take, can take an hour really to getting to know somebody and they're getting to know me, right? Because people are anxious when we're talking about driving. Then after that, we will take my driving rehab car. We take that for a couple of reasons. One, I don't leave home without it. It is my safety net. It has an instructor break in it. So I can control the situation. I know how to drive my driving rehab car from the passenger seat. I can control that car. It's important because what if, what if somebody were to lose their balance, their sitting balance, and I need to take the wheel? Or what if somebody thinks that they've got the strength and reaction in their leg and it gives out and they need to help control the car? So we're using my car. We're also using my car because I have the liability insurance to cover us. <laughs> when I hear um, people who have gone in the car with their patients and they haven't been trained and they haven't gone through, you know, they don't have special equipment or insurance coverage, I'm going, Ah, no, don't do that. It's not right for so many reasons, but right. So I've got the coverage. And then what I let people do is I like to let them pick two or three places that they want to go to. And they start by driving me to those places. Now, if I'm working with somebody, let's say who's had an injury to their hand, their arm, their leg, and we have to look at a piece of equipment for driving when we're getting in the car, it kind of switches almost from that evaluation mode into the training mode. At that point, we're looking at adaptive equipment and there's all different kinds of things out there. There's different steering devices, some that look like spinner knobs, some that look like a long post, some that are a tri pin that will hold your hand in there to support the hand and the wrist. There's left foot pedals. There's hand controls for your driving the gas and the brake with your hands as well. And there's different positions for them. And there's some on the right and there's some on the left. And so when we get in the car, if you need equipment, I then kind of transition to this training mode and we spend the next hour at least starting to introduce that equipment to you. So people who kind of have had an injury and they're coming to me for a specific reason because of a motor change, we are diving into that. And then I see them again, you know, a couple different sessions for training to get them really 
learning that new motor pattern and ready to take and pass the PennDOT driver's test. So in most states, if you're driving with adaptive equipment, you would need to be relicensed. And people really hate to hear that. But I get people ready. And the way it's set up in Pennsylvania is you actually, somebody would take the test in my car. They get their license updated. So I'm with them the whole way. And then after their license is updated, I'm writing a prescription for their equipment. And then I'm doing a check to make sure they get the correct equipment in the car as well. Mm -hmm. So that is their responsibility then to get that equipment after fact. Yeah. So kind of similar to almost like a prosthetic, right? That somebody is going to be fitted for that. And then they order the piece. I'm kind of doing the fitting and the prescribing and the ordering, and then someone else is installing. There's special installers for that equipment. Mm -hmm. And in your vehicle, can you, like you have all that equipment available that you can change out if you need to, so they are able to practice with it? Yeah. So in the world of driving rehab, we have low tech, which is what I have. And then we have high tech. And so basically low tech, think kind of what I was describing, different steering devices, different hand controls, a left foot pedal, high tech, think it's not quite, but think if Christopher Reeves had been alive and driving a car, like you can get up to joystick driving, but that takes a lot of specialized work. I like to mention that though, because I remind people if cognition and vision are intact, we can virtually overcome almost any motor deficit. It's really phenomenal, the choices out there. But yeah, so my car, I've got different pieces of equipment. And so there are, I can almost take everything out when I'm working with somebody with dementia or concussion or brain injury so that they're they're not confused by that. The pieces I can't take off are like, I've got mounts on my steering wheel that you would kind of insert the different steering knobs into those are there, but you can grab those and they're not a big deal. Yeah. It looks funky if you put everything in it, but you can take everything out. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that you can have clients referred to you from other therapists, physicians themselves. Do you have to have a prescription from a physician or practitioner PA like you would for any other therapy service? Or is this totally separate from that. So like someone could say, like, say an aging adult, their child might say, Hey, my parent needs this assessment and they reach out to you. Yeah. So I actually get a lot of phone calls like that. When I was mentioning, there's the people who kind of come in through therapy and then there's other people who come to me and maybe start therapy. (laughs) So the adults who are aging in place in the community. So it's a little bit of a gray area. But my perspective on it is this. I am an occupational therapist. I am licensed as an occupational therapist. I carry occupational therapy liability insurance coverage. I am also a driver's rehab specialist. I'm certified as such, and I have insurance to cover that. And so kind of in both of those mindsets, I do get an order for my clients for a driving evaluation for a couple different reasons. It is considered a best practice in the world of driving rehab. It's not a mandate, but it's a best practice. But also as an OT, I don't feel like I can separate being an OT from what I do. And there are portions of what I'm doing before I get in the car that really are very OT based, especially. So for example, if I have somebody with aphasia 
who has trouble on those cognitive tests because they're all language based, I like to do the assessment of motor and process skills. You have to be an OT to use that test. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I can't separate the two, right? And I, every once in a while, I pull out my old Claudia Allen lace, leather lacing test. You know, I just, I can't separate them. So I always do get an order, but I also fully appreciate that getting an order can be a royal challenge for some clients. And so I am always happy to take care of that piece for people. That is not an obstacle in fact, we usually end up scheduling. And then I say, who's your doctor? I'd like to reach out and get an order and take care of that for you. And they go, you're going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because actually, you know, there's twofold. I like to make that connection, but it's really, it's a great way for them to know who I am as well. And that I'm helping their client. Right. In case they need that as well in the future with That's other right. clients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. So it's all about kind of I've never been comfortable with the idea of sales. And I think that some people, when they think about private practice, they're like, oh, I just don't know if I'm like a salesy person, if I can put myself out there. So I just kind of shifted my mindset around it to, I'm really like serving people. And so if I'm sharing with doctors and I'm sharing with other people, how I can serve and help. And I give people the, you know, if I work for you, great. Here's the price. If that works, great. If you want to sign up, great. If not, Okay. You know, I want you to work with me too, right? And so if we're serving each other, it just makes it really easy and natural to make those connections. And so calling the doctor's office and making it easy for them. Hey, I have an order sheet. Can I just fax it over and you sign it? Sure. Done. Hey, that girl is really helpful. (laughs) (laughs) She has an OT. I'm like, yes, yes. (laughs) So you had mentioned most of your clients usually are only one visit. If you did need to see somebody longer, what would be like the average number of visits or length of time that you might follow through with somebody? So anybody who's doing equipment is more than one visit typically. And so it it really changes and ranges versus on the individual, because I will work with someone who's driven a truck and had to shift with both hands and legs and everything. And I show them how to use hand controls and they are picking it up in one session. And so I might say, I'd like to do a second session just to get you ready for the test, make sure we have the motor habits down where they need to be. And then we're going for their test and they're getting relicensed. And then there's other people who the equipment, we just need to work on it. So I would say in my personal experience, people need between two to six hours of training, some are more. And then I usually see people for a two hour session. So I think that's a little bit different from the world of, you know, traditional therapy where we might have 30, 40 or 60 minutes in driving the first appointments, three hours, my training sessions are two hours and they go, they're so fast, but I'll tell you what I love at the end of the day, only having two or three notes to write versus like eight or 10. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of nice, right? It, it's a real, it's a real bonus, especially when you get to design your own documentation and then everything is check off with some narrative. <laughs> There's a lot of perks to my line of work. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Let me just ask your opinion. What would you say is more challenging somebody with cognition deficits, visual deficits, or physical deficits? So vision Vision is tough because with vision, you have to meet the state requirements for driving or in Pennsylvania, just this past year, 
we passed the laws to allow for bioptic training. Bioptic training, you're basically, you've got telescopes that you're dipping in and out of while you're driving. And so you need, like, there's a whole process for that. So vision, vision is tough and you kind of either meet it or you don't, because if you don't, there's a lot of expense and a lot of training with it. Okay. I love cognition. <laughs> the way people get excited about working with kids is like the way I feel about mild cognitive impairment, brain injury, concussion, dementia. I really am fascinated by it and really like working with that. And I think when I was working at Hopkins and I mentioned my first supervisor who I really liked, I actually was in psych when I had that position and a third of my unit was older adults who had become combative or unmanageable in the nursing home or wherever they were. And I just always really found it interesting the way the brain works and how little we know. And so for me, I am attracted to those clients. I tend to really connect a lot with neurological memory care unit groups. And so I like that challenge. I like them a lot. Just trying to, where is the line, right? Are we seeing the flags? Are we seeing the changes that really indicate it's time to stop? Because the challenge is helping people you know, balancing independence and safety, helping people stop when we see the warning signs before something happens, but not over restricting. Cognition is, it's tough. That's a tough one. The motor stuff is really fun though. And I've had a, like a lot of people with motor changes recently, which has been really kind of refreshing because it's, it's straightforward. It's like teaching. Well, is it, you know, I say it's straightforward because they learning how to use like a spinner knob or learning how to coordinate your hand controls and spinner knob, which is a little bit like patting your head and rubbing your tummy. <laughs> but even when they appear straightforward, there are still psychosocial considerations that we cannot leave behind with these individuals that always come out. And when you're spending two hours with somebody in the car, you start to hear about it and you start to see how it's impacting life and how it's, you know, impacting engagement. And so even when it looks fairly straightforward, there's usually something else too. Yeah. Can you speak to like maybe some of those psychosocial concerns, maybe with someone who has an injury, like this has, their life has been changed by like, say an upper extremity injury and driving for them is such an independent activity how does that psychosocial or those issues play into that? Yeah. So when you ask me that question, I have a case that just like every time she pops right into my head, this woman was really young when I had her. And I mean, it's going back a couple of years I had her, but she was in her thirties and a mother and she was on the highway when a tractor trailer changed lanes into her car. And it came into the driver's side and she was in an accident and ended up losing her left arm below the elbow. So she, you know, when I met her, she knew what occupational therapy was. She had had a lot of sensory work, you know, just working through that limb loss, modifying life and lots of other ways. So for me with driving, it's easy. What she needs is a spinner knob to help her turn the wheel because in Pennsylvania, they don't let you palm the wheel. You need to use an assistive device to turn it first, you know, make sure it's secure. That was the easy part. The hard part was getting her back on the highway. 
and helping her work through even just being around trucks in a parking lot in the driver's seat and going back to, you know, what are the triggers? What can you control? How can we cope with this? Helping her think through those different pieces, helping her find the confidence that she needs. And she was actually, that case is really interesting because she was working with a counselor at the same time. And so we were able to actually coordinate our sessions, which ended up being really positive as well. But driving, if someone's been in an injury or an accident, many times they don't remember what's happened. Like if it's severe trauma, actually yesterday, Elaine, a former patient of mine called me and she lets me share this story all the time. So we can share her name. But she was driving on a country road and she got hit head on 15 years ago, 15 years ago yesterday by a drunk driver. And it ultimately ended up, her leg was crushed. They tried to save the leg. Two years ago, they amputated the leg. She had osteomyelitis into her leg, arm and hand injuries also. I mean, like she was, she was in a coma for weeks, but she still can't drive on that road, even though she doesn't remember three weeks of her life because of the stories around it. And because she says, there's just a feeling I get there. Right. And so part of, and she still lives in the area down there where her accident occurred. And so part of it was just, you know, okay, so there's going to be good days and bad days. And how do you get around this and rerouting and planning? And like, what do you really need to do? And is it coming up in other ways for you? It's one of the reasons I really feel strongly that as OTs, that we do an awesome job in the world of driving rehab, because we look at the whole person. So like a little footnote in the world of driving rehab, there's lots of different people who do this. There are OTs, there's some PTs. I've met a speech therapist. I met a social worker, a driving instructor, a counselor, a special ed teacher, like lots of people can kind of get into this. But I think as OTs, you know, our holistic approach, that person-centered approach really makes us just really uniquely prepared to handle these cases. Have you ever had any, anyone come to you, they want help, you go through the assessment, but there's something that's blocking them that they, they don't want to use the assistance. They, they have a hard time accepting that they're going to have to make some changes to driving. And so they might just say, I'm just not going to drive at all. Oh, judgment and insight. They're interesting things, aren't they? (laughs) So, yes. So I've had some people and I try, I really, so as I mentioned earlier, what I provide as a driving rehab specialist is not covered by insurance and is out of pocket. And so I try really hard to screen people on the phone. And one of the things I will do is if you know, I'm thinking that you might need equipment for the condition. I will be upfront with you about that. We talk about what that process might be or entail even before you schedule, because I want people to feel good about the resources they've used and their investments. I'm not sure what was going on yesterday, but interestingly enough, another case, I had a woman yesterday. So she is a breast cancer survivor. She also has a very strange neurological condition that hasn't been fully diagnosed. They can't seem to put parameters around it. She's seen specialists at Hopkins, Penn. She's gone to New York. Like she's no expense spared. Primarily her deficits, like how it impacts her is she's got peripheral neuropathy into her feet. She has 
some difficulty with postural alignment. I've never seen them, but she's described to me muscle spasms that are extremely painful in her arms and her legs. Breast cancer survivors, radiation. I'm sure you guys have seen neuropathy and issues into the hands all the time, the legs as well. Not surprised with any of that. So we started working together. And when I saw her two months ago, I was doing all my testing with her. Her arms were in great shape. Sensation was there. Proprioception was great. Coordination was great. So I introduced her to hand controls, seeing that her legs really were not cooperating. They weren't receiving the messages they needed to. So the legs were out. And she actually had a situation where she tried to hit the brake and couldn't get her foot there. So legs are out. We had a great evaluation. She did a great job. I come back two months later and she's going to, first she tells me I have, a, I had a back spasm, like some kind of back pain, but it doesn't hurt when I sit down and I feel okay. And I was like, are you sure? Yes. Okay. Go to get in the car and she's pulling the seatbelt across and can't find the buckle. Right. And I'm like, okay, go ahead and take a, it's over there. Take a look. And she's like, okay. And she, she figures it out and she gets it. Okay. And then she needs to adjust her seat. Well, every car has seat adjustments either. It's, you know, we all know reach between your legs, either move (laughs) it or grab for the buttons. Right. We all know this and she can't find I have electric. So she can't find the buttons on the left till we open the door and she takes a look over and she's doing it. I'm going, she's just really nervous. What's going on here? You know? Okay. You know, but my last time with her was really great. So we're just, let's just keep going. Right. Then I like to go through a pattern with people where before we actually start moving the car, we use the car almost like a simulator and we work in station in park without moving, practicing our different motor patterns. And she can't find the turn signal and she has to look for it and look behind the steering wheel. And I'm going, what is happening? Well, this goes on and we actually start moving a little bit as well. And the way a hand control works is you use one hand to push to brake and then either pull back somehow to go. And so you have to like have some smoothness with your pushing because we don't want to go through the windshield. (laughs) (laughs) And then you want to have some smoothness with the acceleration because you don't, well, nobody wants to burn gas with the way gas first. Right. Right? And she had done this really, really well before. And we work and she's just half the time she can kind of do it. And half the time she thinks she's pushing, but she's not pushing enough or she's not pulling enough. And then she over-exaggerates and we take off and I'm like, what is going on? So we pull over and I said, you know, let's just talk about this it's really different today. Like, can you, are you in pain? Are you having problems? You said something with your back was bothering, like what's going on. And she broke down. She said me two weeks ago, I realized I couldn't feel my hands anymore. And I was going, Oh my God, you're having neuropathy into your hands. And she's like, I'm starting to drop glasses or I'm knocking them over. And it's one of those things where when I check her sensation, she can feel me, but her awareness, positional awareness and proprioception completely off. That's why she couldn't feel the buckle or the seat control. Like it's all coming together for me. And I'm going, I was like, you know, so her situation, I said, if that's changing, I no longer recommend you drive with hand controls, you know, because she's going, yeah, I can't. 
I think I'm pressing and I'm not stopping. It's the same problem as your feet. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, like, you know, it's very disheartening, I'm sure, because she's obviously there because she wants her independence again. How do you handle that? Because I know for a short stint, I did some driver screening years ago when I worked for another company. And that was the hardest part is telling them you didn't pass your test and I don't recommend you driving. Well, of course they get, you know, upset and angry. You know, how do you handle that? So I fully expect that conversation to always be difficult and hard for me. And I actually, my approach is to be transparent and objective and as kind as I can be and to not shy away from saying the hard things just because it's hard for me, but to love and respect the person in front of me and talk to her. And so I, you know, we talked about how this is exactly what happened to her legs and I hate it for her. Right. And how, if I look at things objectively and I will break it down, whether it's, you know, her case, or we're talking about dementia or we're talking about, you know, anything else, right. What objectively am I seeing? Why is it telling me that it can't be safe while trying to juggle that insight and judgment piece that might be coming into play also. Right. My, my other main approach is now she's, she's cognitively intact despite not wanting to tell me about her neuropathy, but we all have some form of denial, right? You know, she actually is caught, like she said, the hardest thing about what she's going through is that she's completely with it. So she asked for some time just to think about things. And she's calling me on Friday, but the conversation is going to be driving retirement. So she's a rare case, but in almost every other case, I pull in family So two sets of ears can hear this. I talk to them objectively about what I've seen. I share with them that this is not an easy decision that, you know, again, I want them to be independent. I want them to be safe, but that this is it. It's time to retire from driving. That's my recommendation. It's not safe. I recommend you stop. You know, I'm I'm trying to be very clear while being fair to them. And then usually families, you know, you can kind of tell the person checks out a little bit, which I, I totally get when you get news like that, you don't always want to hear the next pieces, but the family needs to hear the next pieces. So I, I keep in mind this idea of three R's it's remove access, replace their needs and remember the fun. So the idea with the first R is you shouldn't rely on somebody else to remember they shouldn't drive especially if they have a cognitive change. (laughs) (laughs) So it's up to the family to remove their access. If that's removing the vehicle for this individual, it's just going to be removing her keys and making sure she doesn't just decide to try it herself one day. But, you know, with dementia, the brain goes backwards a bit. And like, if you want a 13 year old not to eat the chocolate cake that you're saving for tomorrow's dinner, you move the chocolate. Don't have it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. So we got to remove the car, re- remove access. Then the next thing I always recommend is replace the needs. And so replacing the needs goes back to when I've met this person and I start to understand their habits and routines and know what's important to them. I think the hardest thing, you know, we just think, oh God, okay. If mom can't drive, well, she should just ask me and I'll take her to the store. 
but asking is the hardest part. And so I coach families, listen, we know she likes to go grocery shopping on Wednesday because that's when the best produce comes in. Who is going to be in charge every Wednesday to take her? No questions asked. This person shows up. It's just expected. It's becoming part of the new routine. Okay. We know that she likes to go to the hairdresser every other Friday. Who's on for that? You know, so because I see driving for two things. One, it connects us to the things we have to do. And so we should think about all the have to do things because what happens, especially if we have an older adult who retires from driving, we know that they're at a higher risk for, for isolating, for being depressed. And that just leads to a lot of other problems too, a lot of other downhill spirals. So replace those needs and just do those things. But as OTs, right, the other half of driving is it connects you to the fun stuff. And we are all about living life and life is not just about toileting and not just about feeding yourself or writing, right? It's about writing a love letter. It's about, you know, going out to eat. It's about doing those meaningful things. And so I coach families on that piece too. Like, listen, in your role here, usually I'm talking to a son or daughter at this point, like you're taking over a big role but you guys, you're still the daughter and that's still your mom. And so I want you to do things that are fun. Also go out for a car ride when the leaves are changing. Like everybody seems to love to do here in Schuylkill County, you know, watch the birds migrate, go for ice cream, take them out for a walk. If that's, you know, do those fun things also, because it gives you a chance to be the daughter for her to be the mom and for you guys to enjoy yourselves and not just do those things we have to do but the things we want to do. So remove, replace, remember the fun. I couldn't think of a good R, maybe it's recreation, but I like remember the fun better. (laughs) If you can make it tricky, people remember it better too. (laughs) Yeah. So Susie, I love this. I love our conversation, but I live in Texas and you're in Pennsylvania. So how, how do other people find resources and people like you to send people to and, and connect with? Well, I have a great friend in Texas. Her name's Megan Frazier and you should look her up. Yeah, Uh, for sure. (laughs) Aside aside from Megan, and I'd be happy to introduce you guys too, but aside from Megan, we're like the world's best kept secret, right? Right up there with certified hand therapy, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's all these really cool niche. I'm working hard on my own website. I've done a lot of SEO work. I've invested a lot and I have a directory that I'm building on there of OT driving specialists. But then outside of myself, there's an association. So we can either go to the American Occupational Therapy Association. They actually have a directory of driving specialists as well. They reloaded their website. So the easiest thing to do is just use the search feature and look for driving specialist. And you can search. What I like about their directory is you can put your zip code in and search within 25, 50, 100 miles. Really great if you live like close to the border of something. Like if you live down by DC and you do 50 miles, you'll get hits in DC, Virginia, Maryland, right? So I love that. And then I also recommend people check out the Association for Driver Rehabilitation Specialists. This is a mixed group. This is the group that actually offers a certification in driving rehab, but they have medical and non-medical professionals there. So, you know, you can use that and really take a good look to find other resources as well. They've got a few more on their list, which I also like to just go and double check. You know, I'm always looking in multiple places. I think that right now you have to search by state for them. 
So I love that AOTA tip because the mile thing is really kind of great. I don't know how they did that. I'd love to add that on my list. (laughs) Sure. Well, and maybe we can add that to our show notes. Yes, I will send you the links for those directories. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Susie. I know it was a great conversation and I'm sure our listeners are going to love the information and the the topic itself and we'll be able to use you as a resource. Yeah, Yeah, I really appreciate it so much. I love what you guys are doing. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to me at any time. If it's okay, I have a Facebook page that people can check out. So my business page, Adaptive Mobility Services, or I run a private group. It's just OTs, OTs, OT assistants, OT students. I want OTs to have a place they can come and ask any question about driving. So that's called Driving Rehab for the OT. And we just promote anything related to driving, any new resources that are coming out, any articles, people ask questions, that kind of thing just so people have a place they feel like they can come ask questions, get the info. Thank you for joining us for another episode of hands in motion brought to you by the American society of hand therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Podcast.